You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. As you've noticed, we've been focusing on and writing a lot about artificial intelligence and its implications on the future of work and learning over the past year and a half. This week, we're going to bring you an episode we published back in October of 2016 on what artificial intelligence means for our kids. You'll hear from Tom and Emily on our team as they discuss this topic, as well as from thought leader Gerald Huff. But before we get to the podcast, myself and the entire team at Getting Smart would like to take a moment to dedicate this episode and give honor to the life and the work of Gerald Huff. Gerald passed away a few weeks ago on November 17th after a short battle with cancer. Gerald was a software engineer by trade, but was very invested in education. He was especially concerned about the growing income divide in the country and the prospect of technological unemployment. This inspired him to write a novel, Crisis 2038, a techno-thriller with a moral imperative, which was just published and is available on Amazon. We'll include a link in the show notes. Okay, now let's listen in to hear from Tom, Emily, and Gerald. I have gone off the deep end on AI. So this really, it goes back uh, five or six years when I, I was writing Getting Smart in the fall of 2010. I predicted that by by this year, um, that most learning platforms would have smart recommendation engines similar to what uh, I saw in 2010 in the iTunes Genius, where it was recommending songs for me based on, on my uh, purchase patterns. And I thought that would help build uh, recommended learning sequences for students. So it's true that we're seeing some of that, even in some open education resource platforms, but we're definitely not as far along as I had hoped when I uh, wrote Getting Smart. The, The good news is that we have seen real progress, particularly in adaptive learning platforms like uh, iReady from Curriculum Associates. We talked to Rob Waldron in a recent podcast about that, um, and from Dreambox. So I think it's fair to say that most U.S. kids in school and in game-based learning now benefit from adaptive learning, and most of those adaptive platforms are using at least early forms of, uh, of artificial intelligence. I also predicted that um, in Getting Smart, that information from keystroke data would unlock the new field of motivation research, yielding insights about what caused students to persist through difficult work. I'm afraid we're still a couple years away from that. Uh, but the, the point is, as a path forward organization, um, we at Getting Smart have been thinking about big data for a really long time. And I think what really kicked it off for me is a a superintendent called me uh, during Christmas break um, seven, eight months ago, and he said, Tom, what is learning going to look like in 2035? I blogged him a response that I posted right after the Christmas break, and that really made me think a lot about artificial intelligence and machine learning, this, this subset of teaching algorithms to learn from big data sets. And that caused me to make it a New Year's resolution to really study it in 2016. So in thinking about the ways we've already started to change how teaching and learning looks in schools, you just mentioned some of the things that we've already seen. But what are we doing now, not only in schools, but just in life that we're not going to be doing five years from now? I think about stuff that has changed already. Uh, 
one in particular is just um, smart platforms have changed the way we think about transportation, the way we think about shopping, the way we connect with uh, with, with high school uh, high school friends. All of those platforms are taking advantage of of AI. I think it's still remarkable that when I land in an airport and push a button on my phone that a car shows up and that I get in this car with this stranger and that that stranger lets me get in the car confident that magically they'll get paid when I get out of the car. I mean, that that is still sort of a magical thing for me. And to think that just last week, self-driving cars showed up in Pittsburgh and the week before that in in Singapore and that all happened a couple years earlier than we had anticipated. And now I think my one-year-old granddaughter may never get a driver's license. There will be no reason for her to, to have a driver's license because it's really clear that by 2030, when she's 16, uh, there'll be armies of self-driving cars that will really eliminate the, the need uh, to learn how to drive. Talking with Tom about transportation and AI made me even more curious. So I reached out to Gerald Huff, who's a software engineer that's been thinking about the applications of AI in the transportation industry for quite some time. Let's hear what he has to say. I'm Gerald Huff, and I have been working in the software field for, oh, 25 years now, uh, and currently working um, in the transportation space and uh, in, uh, with a manufacturer that makes highly connected cars and is also working on autonomous driving applications. We have a, a hugely dynamic and complex economy and, and system of, of, of labor and, and different jobs, and every job will be impacted differently. But over, over the next couple of decades, I, I think we'll see a lot of jobs that are that provide mass employment. Um, so some of the most common jobs will come under pressure from automation. And it's not it's not just AI. It's obviously a lot of these jobs involve the physical world and moving things around and 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 doing things in the physical world. And that's where you start to get into robotics as well. Um, so that combination plus 3D printing plus a lot of the things that are happening in healthcare right now as as um, as biology becomes something that is manipulable and becomes a data problem, uh, it's also, we'll see a lot of advances there. And so there are, uh, there are a lot of jobs, what I would call it kind of the edge of organizations. So that's where there's an interface with the physical world or with other people. And that's where the mass of jobs are. So there's kind of the core, which are the um, administrative functions or kind of marketing and engineering and, and the R&D functions. And then there's the edge. Um, and a lot of jobs are at the edge, and those are the ones where technology is uh, is kind of poised to replace a, a lot of human labor. And there's always been a pretty high ratio between the edge and the core, like 10 to 1 or something like that. And so how many people do you need in that core engineering function, in that core marketing function going forward is a very difficult question to answer. So when it comes to training students, you can say, you know, well, you, you know, kind of focus on the creative aspects, the, the social aspects, the STEM, but historically that's been a small percentage of total employment. We don't have any models for where that's 
50, 60, 70, 80 percent of employment. So we, we, that's an economy that, that hasn't existed before. So um, sure. we're going to have to do a lot of thinking and um, exploring of, of a new economy when a lot of that edge functionality of uh, the edge tasks uh, can be automated. Graduates are going to be looking at a world that is uh, – organizations are going to be very dynamic. They're going to be very kind of project-based, and so skills that are around collaboration and innovation and creating new things uh, will be where most of the work is. Um, and the core of these organizations is likely to have some technical component uh, in, in kind of in STEM of some kind. Uh, and then the key is really around creativity, innovation, finding new combinations of things that, uh, you know, that the algorithms may not basically be able to come up with. And uh, that's where I see a lot of, of human labor being focused going forward. AI, in, in, as it's used in creating autonomous driving, should dramatically reduce the number of crashes and, and basically fatalities and injuries um, that are due to driving today around the world, which is, I believe it's almost a million people are killed every year. And that's because one of the major causes of accidents is distraction from the driver, and these systems don't get distracted. They are they need to improve, of course, from their current state. We're still in the very early days, so they don't diagnose every situation as well as a human right now, but they will improve very rapidly with more data. Um, and so from a safety perspective, Really, I don't have much doubt that they're going to be much, much better drivers. They they won't ever be perfect, so we're not going to eliminate to zero all fatalities and injuries, but the, the rate will be far, far lower than with human drivers. And so from a safety perspective, we will definitely save lives and, and avoid um, terrible injuries with uh, with AI doing most of the driving. And from an efficiency perspective, People have modeled this different ways, and I'm not necessarily expert on this, but there is a belief that if you have, once you hit a certain percentage of cars that are doing automated driving on a freeway, you will get higher capacity because, um, first, because you won't have crashes, which are a major source of, of backups, um, but also because they can manage spacing and um, drive closer together and maintain spacing, which is kind of key to avoiding the typical kind of stop-and-go traffic that you often get into in congested areas. And then there's the whole model of transportation as a service. So all of the car ride services as well as most manufacturers are now thinking of transportation as a service that's going to be offered rather than having vehicle ownership. And that will have impacts, tremendous impacts, uh, as that really takes off in the next couple of decades. Because you won't be devoting as much uh, space to parking, so that will free up space in urban areas, and you can potentially create new types of vehicles uh, that allow for kind of very pleasant carpooling, so you can actually take cars off the road and give people like workspaces, uh, individual workspaces where they can work while they're carpooling, and it's not as awkward as you know, being in someone's personal car, and that's all facilitated by by having actual autonomous cars that are driven by AI. 
all of the forecasts are for tremendous improvements in, in both safety and, uh, and efficiency. Now let's head back to Tom and hear a little bit more about his research on AI. Here's what I, what I found um, in August. I set two Google alerts, one for AI and one for machine learning. And in just 10 days, I identified 101 current applications of AI. So th this isn't science fiction. These are current applications in almost every uh, walk of life from music to transportation to medicine to retail and, of course, uh, in, in education. So this is real. It's almost everywhere. I think it's part of why we're having such a weird economic recovery, why we've reached something close to full employment, but why wages haven't started to go up. It, it has a lot of people scratching their heads about this new economy, and it's why I think AI is and will have such a profound impact on, uh, on the economy. And what those jobs will be, what those wages will be tied to those jobs, so on and so forth. Also thinking about your granddaughter, the car that shows up to her house likely will be one that AI has identified she wants to ride in. It'll probably know where she wants to go. And It'll have her music stream in it. Absolutely. So you just mentioned that there is a connection to education. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, there's both direct and, and indirect. And so like us, our friends at Pearson have been writing about this topic. They published a paper that we covered a month ago called Intelligence Unleashed, an Argument for AI in Education. And that they, in there, they dealt with some typical things like personalized learning, you know, adaptive learning will get better. There'll be intelligent tutoring systems. I thought it was interesting that we, we've also launched this campaign on place-based education, on really getting to know the place that you're from, leveraging those local assets. And so Pearson wrote about how intelligent uh, virtual reality will help support authentic learning. And, and I think that'll really improve our approach to science because we've really made science boring. And, you know, like our friends at Planet 3 uh, have this really rich, immersive science content, um, and they advocate for an exploration-based approach to science. And so we know VR is going to be super helpful there. I'm, I think VR and AI can be really helpful when it comes to career education that we can give in addition to work-based learning, we can give kids really interesting AR and VR career experiences. Pearson also talked a little bit about collaborative learning um, and that we can create um, emotional supports for kids that will help put teams together, help provide expert facilitation and moderation. I thought that was interesting to think about AI in that sort of an SEL context. So. So those are some implications for AI and learning, but I, I think even more than, than these, you know, make education better implications, there's broader and more profound implications for what graduates should know and be able to do and the kind of learning experiences that we should create for them. So in particular, the, the interesting thing in the last few weeks for me is how it's brought me back to our interest in deeper learning and project-based learning. If we can automate everything that's repetitive application of, of rules, then the value add as human beings is going to be in how we approach complex and novel situations. So this all suggests for me that we have to create more challenging situations for kids, more opportunities to frame up 
really complex task, more chances for them to persevere through difficulty, to produce interesting, authentic public work products, to share those with real audiences. I think that's how we'll help kids add value in the automation economy. Absolutely. And helping them navigate and think about ways that AI is supporting, enhancing their work, and then having them think beyond to the next. I think that's really huge. So you you and I have talked about this uh, impulse uh, for adding coding to schools, and we both think that's a pretty good idea. You know, it's, it's likely for many kids to be an interesting and important vocational skill, but it's actually a bigger deal than that. It's it's moving past coding and moving past even computational thinking uh, to really big data thinking. Um, and I, you, you and I are both drawn to this idea of, uh, recently I called it code plus cause, of, of framing up big, important, challenging issues. We, I like the uh, global goals from the UN, you know, ending poverty, uh, clean water for everybody, smart cities, these big, challenging goals. And then helping kids understand the big data opportunities around those big challenges. So it's not just learning to code to get a job. It's it's learning the big data applications that helps them attack uh, and really add value uh, to, to some of the most pressing issues of our time. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. AI is a topic that we've been investigating on gettingsmart.com. Check out Tom's recent blog, Artificial Intelligence is Reshaping Life on Earth, 101 Examples. So let's talk about higher education. I think there's some super interesting implications for higher education. I started thinking about this um, six months ago when I met and I read Pedro Dominguez's book, uh, The Master Algorithm. He is part of the amazing CS uh, department at the University of Washington. And in Master Algorithm, Pedro calls machine learning the new infrastructure for everything. And he has this great term. He says, even though, high, even though higher ed remains quite siloed, Machine learning is the new switchboard. In, in, in other words, everybody doing big research projects is looking at big data and is calling the computer science department saying, how do I attack these giant data sets with new tools? And so suddenly, what was this fringe corner of academe is now sort of at the center of, of everybody attacking big, challenging topics. And I, I was thinking, Emily, I was thinking about your your work in teacher education. What, what was your dissertation about? So I was looking at the uh, the outcomes if student teachers did their pre-service practicums and student teaching experiences abroad. So you probably scrounged together a, a data set a few years ago when you're doing this, right? Absolutely. And that was the most laborious part of the task, right. not even diving into the what, what's it going to help do and what are the recommendations. So in thinking about this conversation, there's so many implications for how that research would change. Less time on the big data, more time on pulling out and having AI really help me aggregate what's important to me and spending more time on the latter. So imagine somebody else taking on your, your topic you know, a year from now they could relatively quickly spin up a huge data set and then apply some really sophisticated open tools and, and really perhaps come up with some profound answers. 
or support me in figuring out some answers that I didn't reveal for myself. So one thing that I'm really curious about is I know how this, you know, you've explained how this affects education, um, but thinking about the fact that we're moving from an industrial era to, era to almost a post-industrial era, era, but there are still factory jobs, there's still manufacturing that's happening What in vocational fields. What, what does it mean for that space, for CTE? I've been researching this, and I, so let me quick tell a story. Um, last February, we visited Marion, Ohio, and I found uh, the Tri-Rivers uh, Career Center, and uh, a corner of that was called Ramtech, um, R-E-M-T-E-C, and it was a robotics studio. And what was different about it is that it was not just a generic robotics studio. They were certifying young people and adults in the leading robotics producers um, in the world, um, Photo, um, Fanuc, and, and Motoman. And most community colleges teach sort of a generic robotics, and they don't give certifications in, the, in, in what uh, car manufacturers actually want. And the, the fact that this career center was teaching important uh, robotics to young people made those skills super valuable. So I met a couple of the young people. They were the, among the only eight young people on the planet that had been certified in the leading uh, robotics. And these young people had been hired by Honda to train adults. So Honda was paying for their college, paying them to do training, and it completely reshaped how I think about CTE as this new ladder of, um, of work and learn. What I've come to understand recently is, is what some people call Industry 4.0. Um, th- this is the combination not just of robotics, but robotics plus AI. And the exciting thing is that it really does have the potential to bring manufacturing back to the United States. I was thinking about your, your home state of, of North Carolina, which has started, North Carolina, South Carolina, have started to bring jobs back. But in the last decade, they've been those big car plants, BMW and, and Mercedes have built big plants there. And in Kentucky, Alabama, what's, what's next is going to be these small, smart fab shops that will come back. But, but here's, the, here's the picture. It'll be the 800 jobs that left North Carolina 10 years ago and became 1,600 jobs in, in China and a call center in Bangalore, they're going to come back to places like the Research Triangle in North Carolina, but this time it'll be 80 jobs and it, there'll be a lot of computer science jobs. There'll be people working with manufacturing robots and with chatbots you know, to, uh, to do customer service. So these will be uh, technical jobs and computer science jobs that will support uh, a new kind of uh, manufacturing renaissance here in the United States. So it's exciting for the regions that skill up to get ready for uh, Industry 4.0. Absolutely. I can envision the textile industry coming back in North Carolina where there's more specifics to customer need instead of mass production. Batch of one. Yes. Right? That's the exciting concept is you, you can order a T-shirt, sweatshirt, your size, your message, have it delivered the next day. I have to ask, why should teachers and parents be talking about this? And, and what should we be following as educators to learn more? Yeah, you can tell I think this is a big deal. Um, I think parents and teachers should be talking about this with 
young people. And, and here's why. I'm now convinced that this will have more impact on the lives and livelihoods of young people over the next 10 or 20 years than anything else. I, I can't think of anything else that will more profoundly challenge the ethical constructs that we've created as a society that will more challenge uh, the way we think about jobs, what we do and how we do it than artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, so I think we have to start this conversation. And it's not just, you know, in the, in the past 10 years, we've encouraged kids STEM education and, and coding. That stuff's important. But what I'm talking about is we need across the curriculum to be discussing uh, the, the the ethical issues that are at stake and how this is going to change life, how we relate to each other, the kinds of jobs that uh, will exist. So th this is not just a, you know, should I take STEM or not? This is uh, preparing for a different life, a different set of uh, career options that that just haven't existed. So I, I think it's a big deal. I think uh, every family, every school ought to be exploring this. And that, that's why we've launched a, a campaign called Ask About AI, hashtag Ask About AI. And in that campaign, uh, we know that you're exploring eight specific different areas. What are those eight areas that you're exploring? Uh, we picked up on a, a report that Stanford launched a couple weeks ago launching a 100-year study of AI. I thought that was quite ambitious, uh, hashtag AI100. And this 16-member uh, study panel identified eight areas that are likely to have really big, relatively near-term impact, and that was transportation, healthcare, education, low-resource communities, safety and security, employment and the workplace, um, home and service robots, and entertainment. So, for the next couple months, every week or so, we'll take a look at one of those areas. Last month, we, uh, we took a deep dive into safety and security. The good news is that we're becoming more safe. Uh, the bad news is that with all this GPS and tracking and uh, uh, facial recognition, voice recognition, that we all have a lot less privacy. And that's that's an example of a topic we ought to be talking about in school, of what what does it mean to uh, manage your digital brand and to manage your privacy? And understanding that that's part of the ethical consideration and conversation. No that this is, is this is here. This is happening. This right? is and not just preparing for something in the future. This is how do you want to live your life today uh, to, you know, to be a better friend, to be a better learner, uh, as well as to be prepared for for the future. So next up is health and healthcare. It's exciting to see AI speeding progress on detection of cures for many diseases. In fact, while we were in the car today, um, Mark Zuckerberg announced a $3 billion pledge and posed this question, could we cure, prevent, or manage all disease in our children's lifetime? A really, really provocative uh, and exciting question. So that's the good news, um, but with with the, that potential come some really tough ethical issues as well as security risk uh, with things like genomic editing. So this, you know, this could give you the opportunity to make some choices about a, a future pregnancy. 
On the scary side, it could also uh, make bioterrorism much, much easier. Here's a a good news, bad news story from uh, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. If we marshal these resources properly, it could lead to improvements in the quality of life for people across the world. If we don't, it could imperil life itself. So that seems worth having a conversation about. I'd like to take one more opportunity to honor Gerald and his work. If you found this podcast interesting, make sure you stay tuned to future episodes and to our blog, gettingsmart.com. We're kicking off a campaign on the future of work, and we'll be sharing more around our learnings and what needs to happen in order to make sure our youth are prepared for a more automated world. You can follow hashtag future of work and hashtag ask about AI on Twitter as well. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off. Jessica signing off.